Hello, listeners. This is just to let you know that in this episode, for our third segment, we talk about Basil Crimendall's essay in HowlRound, but we mispronounce his name throughout. Uh, his name is pronounced Basil, like the herb, and not Basil, like the British pronunciation. So we apologize for the oversight. Hello! And welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined by Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, um, how are you doing? What's new in Boston? How is the semester going? Are you guys done at Thanksgiving, or what's going on at, at, at BU for the fall term? Well, the, it, the weather's warm. I think this is the last stretch of warm weather before the uh, the chill sets in. And at Boston University, we will uh, not break actually until December 10th. We will uh, resume classes after Thanksgiving and then continue until mid-December. Yeah, it's it's a long haul, right? I, I realized earlier this week that we were only in week six of the WashU semester, and it, it felt like a, a giant sack of like, I don't know, sand on my back realizing that <laughs> it's like, this is the longest subjectively in terms of subjective duration it's like the longest semester i think i've ever taught in but well nice to see you harvey i am joined also by one of the new on tap regular co-hosts though uh his voice will not be new to on tap listeners uh kareem kubchandani of tufts university is with us kareem um first of all Congratulations on the publication of your book, Ishtail, Accenting Gay Indian Nightlife, uh, published by University of Michigan Press recently. Thank you. It's so nice to have this baby out in the world, finally. I bet. I bet. It looks fabulous. And and I was so uh, fortunate last semester to to hear you give a a talk from that book, and I'm so glad it's out. And uh, welcome welcome back to On Tap. You were a guest host um, on one of our live recordings at Atha a couple of years ago, and it's it's wonderful to have you back. Thank you. I'm really excited. I, I feel really grateful to be part of this conversation in particular, to talk about, maybe to give it away, the um, Jose Esteban Munoz's The Sense of Brown. It, it, his work has been so important to me through graduate school into writing this book, and so I feel like, I feel very lucky to, to be able to talk about it with you. Well, we we feel lucky. I'm sure our listeners feel lucky to to have you in on that conversation as well. Um, today on the podcast, as Kareem has mentioned, we will talk about the sense of Brown, um, Jose Esteban Munoz's posthumously published monograph, which was recently published by Duke University Press. We are going to talk about research slowdowns in theater and performance studies, the ongoing pandemic has had numerous effects on scholarly research, um, some of which are being felt across the board um, in all sorts of fields, and some of which are affecting scholars in our field more acutely. And finally, we read an essay on HowlRound by Basil Crimendall entitled Hierarchies of Power, Cisgender Playwrights, and Trans Characters, examining the issue of social power dynamics, authorship, and gender identity. Before that, before we get to those topics, um, as part of the reboot of the podcast, um, we are modifying our format a bit um, and introducing a new feature, which we're calling the Land Acknowledgement or Local History Dispatch. So in um, episodes of On Tap going forward, in place of the news roundup, which we are going to try to maintain um, through more frequent tweets on the On Tap podcast uh, Twitter feed, at On Tap Podcast, um, in place of that feature, um, each episode, one of the co-hosts will offer a brief report on the possession of the land um, where they're recording. And this may be land acknowledgments. It may delve into other aspects of local history. Um, but that is going to be part of the, the new iteration of the podcast. I have the honor of uh, doing the first of these features. And so... I will speak about uh, the land where I'm recording from. I'm recording in St. Louis in my office on the campus of Washington University. Um, uh, For this feature and for my research, I've been fortunate to avail myself of the Booter Center for American Indian Studies in the Brown School of Social Work here. Um, They have collected a lot of information on land acknowledgments and um, specifically the the indigenous groups that that have lived here, continue to live here. Um, So the land that I'm on now is the ancestral land of several 
indigenous nations, the Osage Nation, the Missouri tribe, the Miami people, and the Illini Confederacy. And so as you can guess, there's a ton of indigenous history here. Um, and I may be able to return to it and do different segments of it on future recordings. But um, today I wanted to look into the and, and talk about the forced migration of the Osage Nation because that was a key turning point um, and enabled the expansion of settlements by white people here. So the Osage ancestral territory over time encompassed a massive um, expanse of land in North America. Um, it encompassed the whole state of Missouri, all of Kansas and Oklahoma, plus parts of what today is Texas, Illinois, Arkansas, Louisiana, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. So if you look into it, the Osage Nation was massive, massive. Um, and it more or less covered the northern side of the Ohio River going west into Pennsylvania. Currently, the, the Osage Reservation is in Oklahoma, in uh, a piece of land that's uh, north of Tulsa in Pawhuska. And the Osage Nation ceded its lands by treaty um, under threat from the United States Army. So in the fall of, of 1808, the elders of the Osage Nation met at Fort Clark, which is about 30 miles from Kansas City in the western part of Missouri State. And they signed this treaty, um, which they were told that they had to do um, or else become enemies of the United States. So in signing this treaty, um, they gave up around 52 million acres of Osage land, but very much under the threat of annihilation. And that's a big part of the the history of how um, the you know white settlements in this in this part of the country expanded. Um, just before moving on, I want to get a, a shout out to um, not just the Booter Center but the annual Washu powwow that they organize. So. As we know, when we give land acknowledgments, it's not all, only about the people who used to live here, but the Osage Nation persists and um, uh, First Nations um, people still exist and live on this land. And so the, the powwow every year is a celebratory event with uh, displays of traditional clothing and regalia and drums and lots of dancing. There's competitive, social, and intertribal dances and participants from many tribes, including usually um, members of the Osage Nation as well. So it's one of the special things about being part of the WashU community is that you can participate. And um, I, I've been to one of the powwows and they're great. So um, for our first topic, we read The Sense of Brown. As I mentioned, this is um, Jose Munoz's last work. Um, Munoz, who died in 2013, was a major figure in performance studies, known for his contributions to performance theory, queer theory, and cultural studies. Um, this book uh, was edited and introduced extensively by Joshua Chambers Letson and Tavia Nyong'o. And so Munoz's work as a scholar and editor uh, were foundational to Latinx studies and queer of color critique. And, and queer of color critique is really one of the major contributions that Munoz is known for in our field and in those um, associated and affiliated fields. So if you're trained in theater and performance studies in the last 10, 15 years, whether or not you've worked on gender and sexuality or race and ethnicity, you've almost certainly read parts of Disidentifications, Munoz's um, uh, foundational work from 1999, or, Cru or Cruising Utopia, um, published in 2009. And so this book has been eagerly awaited for a long time. So it, it's difficult to sort of summarize the book, um, but I'm going to give a bit of information about it from the introduction and just point to a couple of ideas that I thought were striking. And then I'm very curious to know, uh, Kareem and, and Harvey, what you took away from reading this. Um, so Chambers, Letson, and Yongo, in the account that they give in the editor's introduction, um, they they convey that they've lightly edited the incomplete manuscript that they received from Munoz near the end of his life. And they kept the chapter sequence that he had created, but this book also includes several new chapters many of which were presented as talks and were closely related to the same research, especially around the concept of brownness. Um, and one, Vitalism's Afterburn, uh, was the last piece of writing Munoz published before he died, and that's included as a final chapter in this book. Um, so the introduction, which you, you know, when you read the book, you need to spend some good time with it. It, it gives a good roadmap of the text. Um, 
really helps guide the reader through what is, in some cases, a kind of disjointed text, just because Munoz didn't have the time to further develop the ideas he was working on. Um, and so the editors point to some key concepts and observations that help you map what's going on here. And just a couple of things that I thought were good to point out um, or, or really helped me um, navigate the text. One is that this project is developed over decades and was and, and Munoz was working on it during the same time that he was working on Cruising Utopia. And in this way, it's sort of a complementary project. So whereas in Cruising Utopia, Munoz interprets select queer works of art as world-making exercises and interprets them as generators of a queer futurity where a liberated potential future is asserted into the present, and thus it's utopian. Um, the sense of Brown is concerned with brownness, which Munoz clearly understands as existing, as opposed to utopian, right? And of course, it's utopian in a complicated way, in a way that doesn't mean it's absent from the present. But I do feel like there's a kind of contrast and emphasis between the utopian gestures in, in Cruising Utopia and the way that brownness is, is, is rendered as something present or imminent to lived experience in this project. Um, one other thing I'll say is that brownness as a concept, it's very much the thing being developed and worked on in this text. And so there are times when it seems not sharply defined. And there are elements, parts, parts of the text where there's a great deal of ambiguity to the formulations of brownness. And so it, you know, there are times when it can be hard to tell what is underneath that ambiguity. Is it deliberate? Is it a result of the incomplete nature of the project? Is it, um, you know, typical of, you know, some cultural studies discourse that's steeped in high theory? What's the nature of that ambiguity? But there are a lot of really important handholds that the editors give and that um, Munoz's chapters build with relation to each other that give a pretty um, defined concept in my mind. So I think Munoz means brownness to refer to a commonality, to something that is shared rather than an aspect of a kind of atomized subjectivity. And I think it's for this reason that um, uh, Munoz turns to aesthetic theory in developing this. He, he makes heavy use of Jean-Luc Nancy's notion of sense um, and um, being singular plural. Um, so there's something of the emphasis of commonality in transcending individual subjectivity. Um, and there's also a question that I think is significant here, and it's addressed in the introduction about the extent to which brownness is related specifically to um, Latinidad, right? Munoz is writing as a Cuban-American. Um, he's writing as someone who, you know, for whom um, uh, being Latino is part of his uh, identity. But there's no doubt that brownness is something that transcends um, Latinx uh, experience. And in the introduction, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's asserted that brownness is something that affiliates with, intermeshes with Asian-ness, with Blackness, um, with indigeneity, uh, or indigenousness, I should say. And so it's, it's clear that there's something being built here that is not just the, the sort of special concern of Latinx studies. So that's, I don't know, that's, that's part of the takeaway I had from this. But Harvey, Kareem, uh, I'm very curious to know uh, what you thought of this book. Um, so I will, uh, there's, there's something that I really liked in the, in the preface that shaped my reading, but I was sort of anticipating as well um, in reading this. And it's that the, the editors um, describe it as a rejoinder to Cruising Utopia, um, and that it's, uh, it's an opportunity for race to be foregrounded in a way that I think is, is people have disappeared from taking up Munoz's work. And, and, and this, is, this is the trouble with, um, with queer theory is that, you know, it, it, it doesn't need, a sub, it becomes subject less critique in a way that people can forget the, the bodies that made it. Um, and so even, even disidentifications, which has queer of color in the title, can be applied not to queer people of color. Um, and, and you'll find when people cite Cruising Utopia, 
that they'll cite the first couple of pages only. It's it like almost never gets to the case studies, the wonderful case studies in the book. Um, and it's just queer, queer, queer is a horizon. This, so so I think the the title alone, the sense of Brown and, and this development of, of Brown as a, as a um, way of coalescing um, affects and bodies and feelings, I think is, is really... Um, requiring folks to grapple with the way they use Munoz's um, legacy of work. And, and I think that that's really, really valuable. Um, there, some, some of the, the things that I take away are um, the, this insistence that brown, brown, migration and movement are central to brownness. He talks about um, nor, the sort of north-south north, north movements. And I think that that it produces a, a kind of tension it produces two places that people might be caught between um, and, and asks, I guess, what does it feel like to be a problem um, in, you know, echoing uh, Du Bois, but um, this this tension of being caught between two places. So so I think North-South becomes this sort of stand-in for, for setting up tensions um, that produce a certain kind of feeling. And then the last thing I'll say is that I think that there's this directionality shows up in, in many, many different ways through through affect. There's sort of the depressive feeling. There's um, backwardness in, in outdated modes of dress, like um, Munoz talks about Luis Alfaro's mother wearing a mumu, um, and that it's sort of outdated dress. So there's this, there, there are all these moves that he talks about um, a, the, the road and the journey in um, the road to Mazatlan. So there, there are all these moments of movements and, and directionality um, that I think are really interesting and exciting to think with um, so that movement becomes really central to, to thinking brownness as well. Yeah, I'll hop in here and I completely agree. I think that uh, this book is it's, it's a fascinating read. Uh, it's um, an opportunity to essentially dive into the vault, right? You know, so I'm thinking of um, um, you know, it's 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 work that was, you know, workshopped and developed and presented and and refined in various ways uh, over time. And I mean, and, and it has that that feel, right? It has that feel to it where it's like there's moments where you see um, sort of ingenious, uh, inspiring uh, theorizations of performances of memory, right? Or the conceptualization of brownness, uh, as Cream just noted, right? You know, where it uh, it, it it's it's inclusive of migration uh, and it's also deliberately sort of transnational, right? Um, you know, so that it creates a collective politics that um, serves as a rallying um, um, base, um, you know, sort of effectively centered uh, for a number of people, right? You know, looking to sort of challenge um, sort of, I, I think, sort of normative assumptions of whiteness, for example, um, uh, or heteronormativity, for example, as well. You know, so I think it, it, it's, it's a fantastic look there. And then what you get across this book is a series of Munoz's own reflections upon performances uh, that was witnessed and attended, right? So uh, it has an ability to, uh, indeed, as Kareem was saying, you sort of get you beyond the introductory theoretical framing and actually apply into practice, you know, how to uh, engage and read these live performances, um, you know, whether it's uh, Carmelita Tropicana, whether it's uh, Luis Alfaro, uh, there's so many uh, rich case studies that are included here. Um, and I just want to offer one quote that sort of stood out to me. And I think this sort of, in my mind, stands as, uh, you know, one of the the gifts, you know, that uh, Chambers, Letson and, and Youngo uh, give us as readers, right, which is to underscore the performance of memory here. So um, Munoz writes, uh, performances of memory remember, dream, recite itself, and reassert agency in a world that challenges and constantly attempts to snuff out subaltern identities. Um, and then separately, he writes, the queer of color's performances of memory transmit and broadcast effectively charged strategies of minoritarian survival and self-making, carving out a space for resistance and communal self-enactment. Uh, memory performances thus work as calls intended to solicit responses. And I think that this is what this work does, right? It actually inspires you to like sort of keep on keeping on, right? You know, but also uh, to, uh, you know, look back in the past, but also to use that sort of past work. And in this case, the past could literally be Munoz's previous writings, including like these these chapters, you know, to find the wherewithal, uh, the motivation to to keep writing, to, creep, to, 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 to create... Um, a, a a liberatory politics, you know, that's inclusive. 
That's really, these are really great comments. Um, I want to pick up on a couple of things. One is the, um, Kareem, you bring up the the sort of north-south migrations as a kind of instance of a, a broader phenomenon of travel or directionality. And I found that to be really helpful. There, there were moments, I think, coming into this as not really a specialist, someone who you know, know should know Munoz's work better, but has just had limited engagement over time. I wanted to grasp onto what brownness is. And of course, he's he's working it out in these several chapters, in these sort of separate um, projects. There's a moment in the first chapter, the, the Brown Commons, where there's something about brownness that resists uh, knowing or resists knowability. You know, these are moments, when, when I read these in cultural studies, sometimes uh, texts that maybe seem to be kind of obscuring or, or pointing at something unknowable that, you know, sort of raises my spidey sense a little bit um, because I want things to be definable and clear. But the migration and the patterns of north-south um, movements are something that I think is really, uh, really critical to, to the works being done here. Because if you're, if you're wondering what is brownness, is it primarily rooted in the uh, autobiographical accounts of people of one or another um, background? Is it primarily rooted in the close readings of these artistic works? Um, those seem to be rooted more in the typical uh, materials of performance studies methodology and more sort of subjectivity based. But Munoz is a systemic thinker and with pronounced um, affinities for historical materialism, for Marxist thought. So he thinks on the social level. And to me, the pattern of North-South migration is a a sort of objective geopolitical formation that lends a lot of unity and coherence to this. Understanding that, it, it became less difficult for me to sort of grasp what is what is being done with brownness or what the utility of that is or what you know, what justifies this or that distinction? Well, I think one of the things that isn't deeply present in the book um, is our, or two things, our blackness and indigeneity, right? What constitutes uh, the Latinx subject, right? Because this, the, the, the book is, is very much thinking of a Latinx archive, um, what what makes the body brown, right? Um, if if we think through sort of the histories of colonialism, so so I think the um, there there is a way in which he he's naming that even white Latino migrants become brown, um, uh, and and migration becomes that way. But I I think that I, uh, Latinx studies is, is is undergoing its own sort of reckoning around the marginalization of Afro Latinx and Indigenous people in in the um, in the in the conversation in in the in their conferences and and so I think that you know there there's no opportunity to update his text on those terms but but I think that the the field has shifted in in the last few years um, that that ask new questions of blackness and indigeneity that feel missing but also productive right and they're an opportunity to ask um, what what can we do with Brown um, as as he's offered it to us here. It, it it does make you wonder, um, you know, you know, what would be the, what's the twenty twenty version of this book, uh, if Munoz had the ability to and the opportunity to and was alive, right? Obviously, to be able to to do these 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 additional revisions, right? Uh, I mean, that being said, it's like what I like about um, uh, this project and the book itself is that I mean, it's written in a way that it reminds me of of a kind of a mid 20th century sort of a way of, of theoretical writing, <laughs> you know, and what I mean by that is, you know, the chapters both build, but also kind of unwrite themselves in interesting ways, you know, so it allows for you to sort of re-engage as you're going chapter by chapter. And, you know, and, and there are some things that are like left, not quite fully defined, you know, but I think that that's the thing that really gets you going in terms of it's thought provoking. So when Munoz is talking about um, you know, interracial, empathetic, projective identification. Like, there's so much possibility there. You know, and I think that the ability to open up these doors for us to critically think about uh, brownness, to think about race, to think about movement and migration. I think that's just extremely helpful. Uh, and it, it, like, when I was trying to figure out where to position this book in my head, <laughs> you know, like how to c- categorize it, 
you know, on the one hand, I thought about um, Ferdinand de Saussure, right? You know, linguistic theory, you know, in which the bulk of those writings were created by Saussure's students, right? Uh, it was like the notes reconstructed that actually created linguistic theory. Um, and I think that that it's 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 the posthumous creation that actually opens up a field. And I found that really helpful. And on the other side, I thought about um, um, Rebecca Schneider's most recent book um, um, in which, you know, that was a compilation of it was her writing it, but she was also, um, you know, giving lectures and talks. And, and each chapter has a slightly different sort of tone and shift to it. You know, and I think that. Um, you know, it's the possibilities and the opportunities of the collective engagement uh, that we're invited into. Uh, that is the gift of Munoz's project. Um, you know, and I'm just thrilled that. Uh, and I also, I guess the last thing I'll say is that, you know, I just want to underscore for Joshua Chambers Letson and Tavi Nyango, you know, what they've done is, you know, um, you know, they've given our field something that is impressive and inspiring, but they've also demonstrated an act of critical care, right? You know, they've, you know, comb through the work, the archives. They gave it. They, they gave it a presence. This is a project that was contracted with Duke initially, um, and and may never have been published. Uh, so I want to acknowledge the labor that went into this project. Also, just as you as you mentioned collectivity, I just also want to note the vast number of artists that are taken up: Nilo, Nilo Cruz, Mario Montes, Luis Alfaro, Jose Rodriguez, Soltero, Neo Bustamante, Ana Mendieta. Just like the, the collectivity of the artists. Being assembled together, I think, is is another thing that we can take away of um, what are we hearing across their works, that attunement that um, Munoz is asking us to listen to their their works and see what, what runs across. And I think that that's just, there's work that we can do in this collection of artists that, that he analyzes to to get to brownness in our, ourselves, too. Yeah, I, I thought there was an element of the the writing style. These are talks. It's also very much a, an example of performance studies methodology, where it's close, critical readings of works, uh, works of art in the in the mode of performance. But what is built out of them is more than just sort of um, interpretations that are supported by theory. But it's the overall ranging over all of these contributions. It's a the, it's a the, theoretical edifice in itself, and it builds up to be uh, major interventions in debates that are still ongoing. So um, yeah, it, it's a fascinating book, really unique, a, a wonderful contribution to the field of theater and performance studies. So with that, um, we'll, we'll move on now to talk about uh, something that undoubtedly we're going to be talking about and thinking about for years. And that has to do with the way that the pandemic and institutional reactions to it um, are affecting scholarly work in particular. Um, The many different slowdowns in research that are happening uh, across academia, but especially in our field. So last spring when campuses shut down, um, many universities, including my university, enacted um, one-year tenure clock extensions across the board to assistant professors acknowledging the interruption of sponsored research travel, the inaccessibility of archives, the stressful nature of the pandemic, all of which were, it was apparent immediately would have a, a slowing effect um, and, and hamper research activity. But since then, several related developments have continued to make scholarly work unusually difficult and in ways that are affecting uh, theater and performance study scholars in unique and acute ways. Um, so Harvey, I'm curious, what, what effects has the pandemic had on research from your vantage point? What are the different dimensions of this problem for scholars? Right. Well, if you think about it, I mean, COVID, this global pandemic that we're in the midst of has radically changed our day-to-day being, or at the very least, it's changed our our, our week-to-week <laughs> lives, right? Uh, so to put in perspective, you know, it's it's difficult to cha- it's difficult to travel. I mean, obviously, one can still you know hop on a plane, you know, but a lot of universities you know have you know prohibited the use of university funds you know for the purposes of travel, uh, and in some places have explicitly um, not allowed international travel, right? And then of course we have you know the ongoing issue of borders, right? You know that it's difficult to cross borders, uh, both you know sort of crossing oceans, but also the land borders uh, going into both Canada and Mexico. Uh, you know, on top of that, you know, we have you know the challenges around the job market, 
you know, in which a lot of universities, in response to the loss of revenue, um, you know, the, the anticipated deficits, um, you know, occurring because of COVID, have decided to freeze hiring, you know, for faculty, uh, and then a number of places have decided to freeze admissions uh, for uh, incoming graduate school for incoming graduate students. And on top of all that, you have uh, the the you know precarious position in, in which. Um, sort of graduate students in their final year sort of are facing a market where there's not any jobs and then also a lack of funding, um, you know, and also a global pandemic, which could jeopardize their access to health insurance. Uh, so a lot, <laughs> a lot is going on. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a series of conversations we can have, but if you sort of zoom out, you know, uh, from that, you know, I'm reminded of our visits that we've had with uh, Noe Montez, uh, in which, and the conversations with with Noe, when, when Noe talks about the academic job market in particular, and what he's noticed in the last few years uh, has been that uh, many of the research positions have been offered to people who were already employed, right? You know, so that it was someone who was already an assistant professor at a place or a postdoc, you know, moving into a, a tenure track line, for example. Uh, and, you know, what I'm curious to know is like, you know, in light of the fact that you know, graduate students already had a difficult opportunity to, to, to get that first job, you know, what happens when there's even less opportunities available for people? Uh, and then on top of all of these things, you have like, what does it mean to be a researcher? What does it mean to be a person studying live performance when there's no live performance? What does it mean to be a person whose research is um, based upon doing ethnography in which you can't actually spend time with communities because of the distancing um, obligations and challenges of COVID? You know, so that's the world we're in right now. Uh, and I guess just to open it up to both uh, you, Kareem, and you, panel, you know, what guidance, what thoughts do you have for the person who you know, is tackling uh, or perhaps in the midst of a research project that requires sort of extensive travel uh, being somewhere else. Um, and then they find themselves, you know, limited or stopped by COVID. So I, um, I want to applaud actually my graduate students for the kind of creativity that they've found in, in um, dealing with, with this work stoppage crisis. Um, so, so one of, one of my students, uh, Javier Hurtado, works uh, um, on Latinx, the, uh, a Latinx theater company in California and was supposed to be there doing eth ethnography all semester and isn't there. But what he has done is done regular interviews um, interview upon interview with with the theater company. So so rather than a participant observation project, um, he's he's building an archive of interviews that really get their theorizations of theater making and religion and gender and sexuality. Um, and I'm just uh, so impressed at the regularity, right? And I think you know the the sort of time frames we're in right now allow allow him to. Be at home and, and do those interviews. So I just I, I really love how he's um, shifted the way he's doing ethnography. He's gotten to know the company before, but really has shifted the the texture of the ethnography to really be about deep interviews um, that that get new kinds of information. Um, and then an, uh, another student uh, in in the Tufts program, Peter Spearman, works on video games. Um, and and is doing ethnographies with gamers, and so this is, you know, he's already primed for for digital ethnography, and I think that um, not everybody's work has stopped is is also something to to acknowledge, right? That folks were working in digital spheres already, um, and were doing interviews digitally and playing video games with folks from their homes already, um, and so he's thriving. Um, I mean. At least in his work, um, there there are other um, accommodations that that uh, need to be attended to. But you know, I think uh, there there are folks amongst us who who work in the virtual and whose work hasn't stopped. And I, I think it's it's valuable to acknowledge that too. That's a good point. Uh, what advice do you have for the person who? is at the beginning of a research project, you know, that initially let's, let's imagine it's February, right? It's like February seems so long ago, but it was just what, eight months ago. Uh, uh, and, you know, so it's February and they were planning on sort of hopping on a plane to spend time in the archive in some other country. Uh, and then because of COVID, they, they can't leave the country. They can't access the archive because it's not digitized. Let's imagine it's that way. Uh, you know, 
Because this is something that I'm facing right now in which, um, you know, some students are trying to decide, do you defer a year, you know, with the idea that you can pick up the project a year later? Um, or do you just completely redesign uh, your project to do something that's much more local? Um, like, so what, what advice um, might we offer people in that situation? Um, it's a it's a good question. I think that Kareem has already pointed at what I what was going to be the the central part of my response, which is if it's a large scale project, if it's a dissertation or a book, and there's multiple chapters and different kinds of methods in it. Um, a lot of contemporary performance studies and theater research will involve um, readings of live works of art, and that's appropriate. But I imagine most projects will have other components of them, and so you're you're. Uh, research plan for the project should front load the the materials that you can get access to the digital materials the you know if, if the paper books are, are something you can work with you can get those though I'll mention I'll mention this that the different when I was making a list before we recorded of the different dimensions of this um, just access to physical libraries is another part of this our our library at Wash U which is you know a quarter of a mile that way from my office um, you can't just go and pick up a book off the shelf anymore you have to engage with the system and organize a pickup and there's a delay to that but i would say the sort of least interventionist approach would be to reorder what you're going to write and what you're going to work on so get your lit review crunch that out um grab everything digital or remotely accessible that you can and write on that um more interventionist you'd have to think about changing the nature of the project um i I think a lot about my colleague uh, joanna das who is uh working on her second book now um which is on branson and so she uh, had a leave set up and was on her way to go see some performance in Branson. The the irony is that she could go and see it because in Branson they are doing live performance, but it's not something that she deems safe or responsible to do. And so um, she's deferring her leave uh, in the hopes that she can do other parts of the project now, but then maybe next year at this time or, or spring of 2022, um, it'll be safer to go see work there. Um, the most interventionist thing, I think, or the, the most drastic thing would be to change the nature of what you're working on. So if you have an article or a chapter or a dissertation that is primarily predicated on your being able to see this live art, that is gone. And it's not it's hard to know when it's going to be back in the same form. And when you see it again, it will kind of be a different thing because it'll be in a post-pandemic world. And so... I think, unfortunately, the way that the job market is, the way that the pressure to publish is, I don't think that young researchers in the early parts of their career can afford to just sort of wait for things to return to normal. They may not return to normal. I think they that it might be necessary to reconceive the type of project you're doing. I, I think it's also valuable to, to remind researchers that they're trained to do many things. Um, and you know the the one project that they're working on, or the one method they were going to uh, t- take up, could you know could be reimagined. You know, I, I just think about all the all the papers I wrote in grad graduate school, before I did ethnography, right before I actually had time and funding to go and do ethnography. I wrote about queer South Asian performance in nightlife, without um, without doing ethnography, right. So there there was an archive um, available to me um, that that didn't require travel um, in, in finding performance in literature, finding performance in film, et cetera. Um, so, so, so maybe return to those papers and think about, okay, well, what's the alternative um, object I can look at if I can't travel to it? Um, the, other, the other might be imagining research exchanges. If we can't um, travel to an archive, is, is the archive living at another university and you can use your research budget if you have one to ask a graduate student there to photocopy something for you or um, take notes on a building for you or photograph a building for you or a sculpture or something like that. So so I wonder if there, there are opportunities for research exchange in, in that way and, and it's a way of getting money into the pockets of people who might need it too. That's a great idea. I didn't even think about that. Um, and I and I know that in terms of working with some of the archives, the archivists in collections, um, you know, you know, they're working remotely, and in many cases, they're still the only ones who have access to the to the papers uh, in the collections that are there. So I've had some 
some some good luck, um, you know, gaining access to things that would have been sh- strangely complicated, <laughs> you know, to encounter, uh, you know, even even virtually uh, and digitally as a scan, um, you know, if not for COVID. Uh, but and I think part of it was that the number of requests declined, you know, for some of these collections, so it became a lot easier. And the turnaround time, I will admit, like the turnaround time has been remarkably quick uh, for some of these things. I mean, but I do want to underscore that. Um, you know, sort of the time part of it is limited. Uh, And, you know, what we're living in right now is, you know, hopefully in retrospect, you know, a really inconvenient, you know, sort of couple years. Uh, But in this moment, when you're looking at, you know, a a funding package that's limited, if you're on a tenure line uh, in which you're up for um, review in short order, uh, that, you know, it might be uh, important, as Kareem just noted, to realize there's so many capacities, there's so many uh, sort of potentials, you know, for you to explore and so many ways to access these um, sort of topics and engagements, um, you know, so you can do those first and then pursue, um, um, you can continue that project, you know, in a different way later on once things reopen. Uh, but it's, 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 it's difficult. And I think that we also want to under- underscore just the emotional toll you know, that it takes that if you spend so much time planning a project or making the arrangements to access an archive to, in many cases, people booked flights and found places to live, uh, you know, the project became a living, breathing thing in your head and you want to realize it and you want to live it and, and that gets taken away. So I think that part of our collective responsibility as well is to uh, just understand the sense of loss you know, that people are feeling um, as they're having to shift and reposition uh, their projects. Yeah. And, and there are other dimensions to this we haven't gotten into. Um, the, the interruption of in-person teaching of small children is meaning a lot of people are having to take care of kids at home, supervise their at-home learning. This disproportionately affects parents. It disproportionately affects women um, who tend overall to give more uh, of their time to, to child care. Um, and that's a tougher problem. I mean, I think in general across the board, not just for parents, but um, people who struggle with mental health issues, which uh, many of us do, you have to think about how to keep your your body and your mind going um, under stress. And there aren't easy answers to that. But I feel like, you know, at least speaking personally, I found myself putting more time and energy maybe than I would normally into just my health and my mental outlook. And I have tenure. I'm not in a position where I have to worry as much. But for anyone, the stress is a factor. Um, You know, there's also something this has been referred to before, but the difference between short horizon and long horizon projects, if it's a book or dissertation, you might reorder different parts of it and not fundamentally change the nature of it. There's all sorts of new digitally accessible performance. The the situation of um, uh, performance and theater and dance in general has changed. And it may be possible to write articles on what's happening now um, that if you you know, if you're on a shorter time horizon, that's available to you. One of our graduate students in our MA program, Holly Gableman, is doing her master's essay on different um, art projects that happened in London in the spring when the, she- when the theaters shut down. Um, uh, live streaming uh, images of, of theaters that have shuttered, um, uh, reenactments of the lobby of of uh, large uh, urban theaters that are happening in apartments. So she's crafted a master's essay about what's happening now, and it's really exciting. It's a shorter time horizon. She could do that, right? She could say, oh my gosh, there's interesting things happening now. I'm going to write uh, my essay on that. It's harder for a dissertation, but that kind of adaptability, I think, will serve people well. Well, with that, I, I, I think maybe it's time for us to turn to our third topic. Um, we read an essay from 2016 in HowlRound um, by Basil Kreimendahl, the, the playwright, um, entitled Hierarchies of Power, Cisgender Playwrights and T- Trans Characters. Um, it's a really thoughtful essay about a difficulty in theatrical representation. Basically, should cis playwrights write trans characters? Um, and and uh, Basil does not find a straightforward uh, decisive answer to that question, but it was really thoughtful. Um, Kareem, I wonder if you could sort of talk us through the gist of the essay and, and, and your take on this question. Yeah, um, so I, I think I, I really enjoyed this because it's short and it doesn't leave us with easy answers, but it starts with thinking, uh, Basil starts with thinking about 
um, how trans characters often feel like they're really one dimensional. <laughs> Um, and 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 this 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 had me thinking about again Munoz's notion of attunement, but how you you know you you listen with that common sense, and you realize that the the playwright isn't making something that is inviting you in, that is calling you you in, but there something is off. They they lack compl- complexity uh, when when they're they're written by by c- cis folks, um, and and when trans characters are written by cis cis folks, the only sort of dimension to their character is their transness, right? There's, they lack complexity. And, and Basil is asking when we can move beyond this kind of didactic, um, only humanizing the, the character um, kind of story. So I think what they're, what they're trying to point out, um, or what they state, is that we have to consider the power that is at stake. Who gets to tell, who, who gets to tell stories, who's curating theater, um, and who's sort of positioning things as neutral or mainstream, right? Who gets to who gets to decide what is mainstream, um, or what kind of trans story is mainstream enough to produce? Um, and they're not saying that we shouldn't write characters that are not ourselves, right? Um, they say that you know I I don't I don't want to do that. I don't want to just write someone who is me. Um, but they're rather gesturing to the the quality of characterization and plot when cis folks write trans stories, and I, you know I, I don't think this is this is brand new. But and this was written in 2016. But you know I, I just did sort of a, a quick Google of um, transgender theater, and in in the last uh, four years, our articles in Backstage and in Them.us and and other articles on how how round are still raising this question of um, who who gets to decide uh, who's on stage, who gets, um, you know, because they're thinking about directors, curators, um, casting agents, and playwrights. You know, so, so more players come into this um, into this story than just the playwright. Um, so I, I, I wanted to ask you where um, where you sit on these, where, where, if you've run into to challenges around casting or um, writing when when you know working with students who who want to um, describe the other quote unquote, um, and really what should be the rigor and ethics of researching and writing minoritarian figures whose lives deviate from our own? Um, what what are actual strategies to 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 writing those figures? So maybe we can start with perhaps any incidents or encounters you've had with these questions of representation. Yeah, I'll, I'll hop in here uh, and and take it in a different direction, I think. Uh, and this is really looking at actor training. Uh, and, and, and this is prompted by by your question, Kareem, uh, in terms of, of practices witnessed. Uh, and, and one thing that's kind of bothered me, I'll, I'll admit, <laughs> you know, over the years, is how in actor training, uh, there's a way in which aspiring actors or even sort of um, you know, emerging established actors who continue to um, study with a, a coach or whatever else, you know, are often sort of taught to occupy extremes, right, in terms of, of, of character uh, interpretation. Uh, and, and I think of it as a way of just sort of drilling out the two-spiritness, <laughs> right? You know, like it's really about... Um, um, you know, being sort of an extreme on one end in terms of being, um, you know, a hyper, hyper masculine, hyper feminine, uh, and not actually allowing for an investigation, interrogate, an interrogation of, um, uh, of, of, of the twin dynamics that can be inhabited within a body, right? Uh, and I think that that sense of expectations of extremes, you know, then sort of informs playwriting as well, right? And I think that that's where you begin to get. Um, you know, the character who is not fully dimensional, who happens to be a trans character uh, because of this sort of audience, but also sort of a, a field-wide disciplinary sort of expectation of extremes. And I think that needs to be changed and, and, and revised. Um, in terms of how one does the work, you know, I think that, um, you know, I've, and I think this is part of the article, I've, I've learned um, you know, not as 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 a as a as a black man. <laughs> you know, like I've learned a lot a lot about whiteness, which is part of the article, right? You know, and it's just one of those things where, you know, it's about reading, it's about doing the work, and in some cases, I didn't have the choice. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of put in front of me, and I think we have to do the same thing. I think we have to, um, you know, sort of share narrative, share experiences, you know, require them where we have the capacity to require those who study with us. For example, if you're an educator. Uh, you know, so that we're actually expanding 
um, you know, people's sort of knowledge base. And we just can't assume that, you know, certain experiences and certain backgrounds are core, you know, and I think that that's where we sort of err. Uh, and I, and, and, and listening is a large part of it, right? You know, so it's like, you can't just dive in and say, I'm going to imagine and know someone's experience without actually having done the work to read, to listen, to, um, um, you know, you hear voices to to witness you witness other people's lives. Um, so that's what I think needs to happen. I, I really I, I value you thinking about training. There's um, in theater topics in the most recent issue of theater topics. Kay Woodzik has an essay called "A Non-Binary Actor Prepares for Battle," and they offer actual strategies of how to approach a director um, if you want to audition and letting them know on what terms you want to. Um, deciding the terms for yourself um, and letting the de- director know here's where I am here's what I expect of the rehearsal room as well um, so so I think that question of training is is really valuable and, and the way they get to it is thinking about voice training um, and the kind of non-binary way in which they, they were allowed to to train their voice um, you know I, I and I think it's 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 valuable to to not just um, draw parallels between race and and transness, also because because of the way that characters are um, outlined in uh, in play scripts. Um, so there's there's the there was this I pulled up this web website called Breaking Character that had six plays and musicals for trans awareness, and all the cast listings were they they still showed M or F, right? Um, yes. And and it, and and. It just is is uh, difficult to to think about. Well, where are where are non-binary, uh, gender non-conforming folks? Uh, um, how how are you allowed to um, think? Imagine yourself into plays. So so for playwrights to actually think about how they even define the gender of their characters, so that um, directors feel the freedom to to cast in in creative ways. We're we're in a moment where everybody is making new pledges to social justice. Um, a lot of our departments are. But I think my worry is that they're going to pick those plays that s- still teach the mainstream um, what transness is, what anti-blackness looks like. And and, and those those plays aren't fun for for uh, minoritarian folks. I you know I, I think it's worth plugging that um, Basil Crimandall has a play called Orange Julius um, that has uh, that tells the story of um, a young trans man nut and his father who's a Vietnam War vet um, and and so thinks about com- complexities of masculinity across differently gendered people too um, in relationship to war and um, and and everydayness. So so think about directing Basil's show um, on your campus if if you can and it's a small cast so maybe it can be done online um, yeah indeed indeed um, well we're we're near the end of the show and we have one thing that we have kept from the prior iteration of the on tap podcast is the drafts <laughs> um, we'll never get rid of it um, drafts regular listeners will know are our individual thoughts in process uh, or I don't know research projects things that reminded us of significant issues in the field um, shout outs log rolling self-promotion whatever we want um, uh, Harvey I don't know do you want to lead us off with your draft on this episode yes well i mean right now i'm just <laughs> you know i'm in the i'm in the middle of, of of a few editing projects uh but the one that's currently on my on my uh on my desk i'm looking at my computer right now but on my desk uh is i uh, actually features kareem it, it features kareem it's uh it's theater after empire which is a book that i'm editing with megan geigner and you know what we're what we're working on right now in these last stages it'll, it'll go to the press in about a week or in about two weeks um uh is actually thinking about like you know how do we conceive of empire outside of the conventional um post-colonial arrangements that you know have dominated um, sort of academic discourse for the last i don't know a, you know couple decades or more within theater studies and how do we sort of expand it so that we can engage with you know, performances, you know, within the metropole, you know, how do we deal with, you know, a nation's um, that was an empire sort of sense of declining prominence. Uh, and in some ways, that's uh, something that I'm particularly thinking of, you know, when we live in this current moment with the United States, where it's, you know, almost with every week, we're, we're reminded, <laughs> you know, of, 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 of a removal away from uh, not only the 
um, let's admit let, let, let's admit it these sort of fictional you know imaginings of the founding fathers which were not inclusive in any way even though they sort of used the language of inclusion uh, but then also the more recent sort of rhetoric of of, of inclusion that that you know, which has also had its problems that emerged under the presidency of Barack Obama. Uh, but no, no matter what, no matter what perspective you're taking, we're still in this moment of a sense of decline, <laughs> you know? So I'm thinking as we're writing in the midst of COVID, in the midst of Trump, it, with an election coming up, um, you know, how this idea of being after empire uh, resonates um, in so many uh, ways, which, which admittedly, um, Megan and I didn't fully anticipate. Uh, five or six years ago when we first started brainstorming this project. <laughs> so so that's what's going on right now. But I will say, you know, Kareem's chapter is brilliant. Uh, and next year uh, at this time, uh, you know, people will love, to, yeah, I'm sure people will love reading it. it. Next year will be truly after Empire. I mean, really. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, hoping, I'm, I'm hoping it's just after COVID. <laughs> so, like, you know. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Kareem, what's your, what's your draft for the episode? Um, I'm just I'm gonna plug quickly that the the essay actually in Theater After Empire that I wrote takes up um, Jose Munoz's Feeling Brown um, from one of the early essays published from from this project. So so this his work is already useful. The sense of Brown is already useful to us and showing up um, in that book. But I, I uh, so my book just came out and I've some very lovely people have been teaching teaching it um, in their classes and I've been doing class visits and a graduate student at Urbana-Champaign said that when they read the work it's work that really takes you to the nightclub and to the dance floor and so it felt like reading an archive of loss and that because we can't go to the club right now <laughs> um, and clubs are some of the most contagious spaces and that you know, I've never thought about the project in that way. Um, but but uh, then a couple of days later, I read an essay in The Guardian by Benjamin Riley, who talks about the loss of queer nightlife. And that, um, you know, if, if we think about queerness as that thing that is between people, I'm, can I even be queer when I'm alone? And without the nightclub, how many people have lost what they call their queerness. Um, so it's just interesting to, to hear nightlife being th talked about as something in the past, even if it's for, just for now, but it's really something of the past. And, and, and you know, nightlife has always been a place of loss, but and especially in the HIV AIDS crisis. But, but what will research look like for those doing this work now? Um, I'm teaching a class called Queer Nightlife next semester, and I, I wonder how my students are going to approach it. Um, but, you know, it, it's raising new questions of loneliness, loss, archive uh, in relationship to nightlife that were never not necessarily at the center of my scholarship. And I wonder where they're going to take me. Yeah, it, it's striking how much in this time of turbulence and dynamism and a feeling a feeling of sort of historical epical change, how things from a couple of years ago seem completely recontextualized and strange. Um, for my draft, I will complete the trifecta of talking about uh, my experience of my own work. Um, uh, so <laughs> I have I have an article coming out soon, any day now, uh, in the Journal of the History of Ideas, which I'm very proud of. Um, and I will, you know, I, I'm very happy to talk with any listeners or correspond about the substance of it. It's it's about Adam Smith and and his, the impartial spectator and the theatrical um, meanings that are built into spectatorship in that in that work. But the reason I wanted to talk about it was that this article has been unique in my career because it took me. It has been in process for 11 years. I started this when I was a postdoc. I was at a talk where uh, a philosophy professor gave a book on, or gave a talk on his book about Adam Smith and David Hume and uh, someone I talked to at the end of the talk said, oh, yes, did you know that Adam Smith um, had an extensive correspondence with Voltaire and that he loved Voltaire's theater and that it was a part of his thinking in the theater of mortal sentiments? And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. I didn't know this. I have to write an article about this. So I started researching it, didn't find anything like what that person told me. And then the process of getting this article to fruition has really been a long series of, re of rejections and strokes of bad luck and uh, feel like like emotional uh, uh, 
challenges for me to just keep it going. So at the risk of belaboring it, I'll just say that earlier drafts of this article have been rejected by numerous journals, journals in our field, journals in in interdisciplinary 18th, uh, 18th century studies, uh, there were times when it was ex- it was revised and resubmit, and then I, uh, in the interim when I was revising, the editorship of a journal switched, and then the new editors spiked it, and I was back to square one. The the most recent time when I submitted it, not the most recent time, but the penultimate time when I first submitted it to the Journal of the History of Ideas, I got a revise and resubmit, but I had to finish my book project, so I had to put it down and finish my book, and then only three years later did I go back to it and I was bruised like it had been rejected so many times I'd come in very I'd come very close to giving it up but each time I would take the feedback and start again and reconceive and and fix it up and then by the time I got around to revising it again my revise and resubmit status had lapsed so I had to send it in again and get a fresh new round of readers reports but that time it was accepted but of course that was now like um 20 months ago when I first submitted it. And it's coming out in the October 2020 version of the Journal of the History of Ideas. I'm very proud of it. But I'll just say that it has been an object lesson in in persistence and uh, uh, coping with rejection and taking feedback and not getting frustrated and not getting resentful. Um, and so it, it's extra meaningful to me as a piece of scholarship just because I, I never gave up on it. That said, I check every day to see if the <laughs> edition of the journal has come out because <laughs> it's supposed to be October. And until I actually see it in print, I'm kind of not going to believe it because it's been such a long ordeal for me. But listeners who are dealing with rejection um, – um, I just want you to know that it, it, there's a lot of rejection out there and it can help to just take the feedback and keep going and not give up. Um, Kareem, Harvey, it's been such a pleasure uh, talking to you on this episode. Listeners, thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Um, in the coming episodes, you're going to meet the new the cohort of regular co-hosts on the podcast. Kareem, thank you so much for uh, batting lead off and, and being the first one. Um, and um, listeners, we'll have another podcast for you in about a month. And Sarah will be back. On Tap is produced with the support of the Performing Arts Department of Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. Our associate producer is Carly Kessler. Our intro music is by Septa Helix, and our outro music is by Gabriel Kahane. You can learn more about the podcast at our website, ontappod.com, contact us at our email, hosts at ontappod.com, and follow us on Twitter, at ontappodcast. 